According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14, as we're uh, working down now to uh, the fear of the Lord here in verse 26. In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence and his children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. Then verse 28, in a multitude of people is a king's glory, but in the dearth of people is a prince's ruin. So uh, yeah, we've got a handful of things there we're dealing with. Then verse 29 about being slow to anger. We actually covered that in an earlier verse, so we'll skip over that. Um, anyway, we're getting done. There's 35 verses in the chapter and we're, we're approaching it. All right. Before we get started though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to bless our time together. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have to assemble together. And Father, uh, we thank you for brothers and sisters that are hungry uh, to be fed, hungry, uh, hunger and thirst after righteousness, and uh, there's a happiness in that, Father. I thank you for uh, the blessings we have to study to show ourselves approved, and to do so on your calendar, not ours, Father. And uh, I know we get it gets tedious sometimes, we get bogged down in different places. Uh, maybe Proverbs has gotten slower than it has been lately, or maybe Hebrews has gotten slower. Father, we trust that that uh, we are in your will and that we are seeing what you are showing us. And uh, Father, we just thank you for it. And ultimately, I don't know what the hurry is. We could spend the rest of our lives in the book of Proverbs, Father, and just never uh, never exhaust the uh, the infinity of truth that is to be found here. So thank you for being faithful. Open our eyes today and feed us. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So uh, as we were dealing with this a week ago... Let me just bring up this slide, slide 17 if you care, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's, it's, it is happens to be slide 17 that includes points 15, 16, and 17 all on the same slide. Um, as we're looking at this, um, we were looking at the fear of the Lord. We talked about life and death with truth versus the lie, and we dealt with that from verse 25. Uh, but then we moved on to point 17, and so this is what we were working on a week ago how the fear of the Lord turns a home into a fortress, turns it into a refuge. And uh, like the old expression, a man's house is his castle, you know, kind of a thing. And so you have the castle doctrine and things that that are built into our law, by the way, that if you are defending your home, you have every right to defend your home. And if someone's breaking in, uh, you know, you protect your family, you protect your your children, and and, uh, you're not going to be charged with murder if uh, someone's breaking into your home and you... uh, and you uh, defend yourself, and that's what it's about. And so we have uh, obviously an earthly understanding of of, uh, of a protection, of a refuge, of you know uh, the the protective value of uh, of, of your home. Uh, but the Bible talks about the spiritual protection. Talks about the value of, uh, of hedging yourself about the fact that God put a hedge around Job and all that he had on every side as Satan was attempting to go in and afflict him. And that's beyond the physical uh, barrier is the the spiritual barrier. Is there a hedge about your home that protects you from the demons, from the fallen angels, from the spirits 
from uh, uh, other things that would come in and bring you to harm, from harmful influences. And so these are the kind of things we think about when we talk about uh, a fountain of life, and we talk about uh, the strong confidence in a place of refuge, that one may avoid the snares of death. <clears throat> if you're in the Word of God and you're in a Christian home and you're under consistent teaching and you, you are a part of a family that values the Word of God, that makes the Word of God a priority, well then there's going to be a benefit there. Uh, but if you are the only believer in a family of unbelievers and the house is pretty worldly and uh, the other influences that come in in terms of the, uh, you know, the entertainment and the movies and the books and the parties and the drugs and the whatever else is happening, then uh, yeah, you might be the lone ranger in that, you know, the, the one believer in that house. But I tell you, um, the influences there are going to be harmful. And it's not a refuge. And it's just the opposite, actually, because it's not contributing to your spiritual well-being. And, uh, and that becomes a problem there too. And you've got to decide, you know, Lord, am I here as a missionary or am I here, is this, is this rubbing off on me and I'm being defiled? And at what point do I have to come out from their midst and be separate? At what point do I need to distance myself? And it's hard because it might be a family member, it might be a, a child or a, a sibling, and uh, that darkness is going to defile you. And uh, you may say it doesn't, but it does every time. So you've got to be careful on that. So yes, the fear of the Lord does turn a fortress into, uh, it turns a home into a fortress of refuge. And I just love these verses. Again, it's Proverbs 14, verses 26 and 27. Also uh, comes back again as a concept in chapter 18. Proverbs 18 and verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. And, uh, you know, don't underestimate the power of the, of the name. It is the name, the name above every name. And when you name the name of the Lord, you understand name is a noun, but name is also a verb. And I don't think we, we verb it enough, right? I think uh, we understand it as a noun, the name of the Lord, but do we name the name of the Lord? He who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. So if you name the name of the Lord, what does that mean anyway? How do you name the name of the Lord? Do we, do we get that? Do we know what that is? Okay. And so, um, we, I mean, we understand how to name something. I, I named all four of my children. You can name your pet. You can name your car. You can name whatever. I named this tablet. You can, you can name things. But what does it mean to name somebody that already has a name? <laughs> okay. Like I'm naming the name of the Lord. He has a name already. God has bestowed upon him the name that is above all names. So, I'm not assigning him a new name when I'm naming him, but what am I doing when I'm naming? Okay, And this is really the, the reason why I think we neglect it is because of the abuse by the, the name it and claim it crowd. Okay? And so we don't want to join the name it and claim it crowd, so we never name it. And that's wrong. Okay? We want to do our own name it and claim it. That is, I want to name the name of the Lord and I'm going to claim He's faithful and I'm not going to expect to get rich quick or any of those goofy things, but I'm going to name the name of the Lord. Because the name of the Lord is a strong tower. So the next time you're, uh, you know, instead of uh, panicking and, and going into uh, uh, emotional revolt and all those other things, just stop right there, name the name of the Lord, and remind yourself, I'm in the Lord. I'm in Christ. When I name His name, I'm naming myself. I am in Christ. What a, what a thrill. What a joy is that? And so uh, we name the name of the Lord. And it's a tower, a strong tower, and we can run to it and be safe. As opposed to the world, of course, they use their own money, they use their own pride, they use the, how smart they are 
uh, Proverbs 18, verse 11, right after our key verse here, verse 11 says, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. Well, how long does that last? When does that run out? And like a high wall in his own imagination. <laughs> yeah, it's not as high as you think it is, buddy. Just wa- just wait. Uh, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, and humility goes before honor. So we can understand that as well. All right, how about Psalms? Look at all these Psalms again and again and again and again. How many times do the Psalms encourage us? Psalm 14, 6. Of course, uh, Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So uh, if you want to be an atheist, be an atheist, but the Bible calls you a fool. And uh, worse than that, they are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who is good. And this is just the hopeless estate of lost humanity in Adam. This is why God has to send His Son to do what we cannot do. Um, So there is no one who does good, not even one. Verse 4, do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread? Do they not call upon the Lord? Calling upon the Lord is the same as naming the name of the Lord. There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You know, they're on the wrong side of of eternity as far as that goes. All right. You would be put to shame, you would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. So here they are, they're mocking and they're ridiculing and they're putting to shame and and, uh, they're just... You know, they're looking at a believer who's walking by faith and they're just saying, oh, how sad. You know, you're so deluded. You believe the Bible. And uh, don't understand. The Lord is his refuge. And uh, wouldn't want to have it any other way. Psalm 46. Psalm 46. This is... um, a psalm of the sons of Korah set to Alamoth, whatever that is. Some kind of, uh, you know, musicians know this stuff. Uh, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I love that. Very present. That includes today. <laughs> right here. He's not just present, He's very present. So there you go. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. This is the, the marvelous thing about our Lord. You never get a busy signal. He never, uh, you know, he never turns his phone off. He never puts you straight through to voicemail. You know, you call somebody and you don't get them and you just go straight to voicemail because whatever, they turn their phone off or it's not charged or, or they don't want to talk to you. Call waiting, they find out it's you, so they just push no and you go straight to voicemail. Okay, you guys know what I'm talking about. But God never, God never, I know, isn't that terrible? The pastor's calling and goes straight to voicemail and go, oh, okay. I'll pray twice. <laughs> but when you're praying to the Lord, He never he, he answers every time. He answers every time. And uh, a very present help in time of trouble. And He never says, oh, you know what? This is really kind of a bad day for me. Kind of a bad week. You know, how about, can, can I fit you in sometime, uh, you know, week after next? How about that? I say, Lord, but I'm having the test today. I'm having the test right now. So, yes, He is a very present help in time of trouble. He's a refuge and a strength. Psalm 61, verse 3 and verse 4. 
Hear my cry, O God. Give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And so there's never a bad time or there's never a bad place. You're never in a bad spot that he can't reach you to the ends of the earth. So his arm is not so short that wherever you found yourself, you know, maybe you have run quite a distance. Guess what? He's there. For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. This is what it means to name the name of the Lord. This is what it means to call upon the Lord. This is what it means to run to your refuge. How do I enter into that refuge? How do I enter into faith rest? I mean, this is ultimately the book of Hebrews right here. This is how you enter into faith rest. It remains for some to enter into it. Well, how do you enter into it? You do. (laughs) You name the name of the Lord. You claim the promise by faith and you enter in. You say, let me in, right? And is he ever going to say no? Is he ever going to say, sorry, I'm too full? Never. Never. There's always room. How often I desire to gather you under my wings as a chick gathers her, or as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. See, the point is, he's willing, he's ready, he's able. We just have to be willing. And so you go to him in prayer and you say, Lord, I'm tired of all this carnality. Can I, can I be in fellowship for a while? <laughs> can I dwell in your tent? Can I abide in your word? Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. And so uh, we see it there. All right? Uh, how about Psalm 91? I think likely 90 and 91 were probably originally one psalm that later got split, and that's fine either way. But if so, that means Moses is the author of both. He's the author, author of 90 and, uh, and the author of 91. Um, however that goes. Uh, but he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. What a promise. All right? <clears throat> and uh, if you think about it, if this was Moses, but even if it wasn't, but think about it, Moses uh, led them out of, it, uh, out of Egypt and they traveled in a tent for 40 years, right? And then he, he would go to the tent of meeting, he would meet with the Lord there. What a provision. And that's available for all of us. See, we all can enter within the veil. We all can enter in Christ within the veil. We all can, uh, can be in this rest. For, for us as church age saints in particular, I mean, this is Hebrews. I mean, this is a, a, a Hebrew verse from the Old Testament. And so, you know, Israel had their application to make in, in their stewardship. Uh, we're that much more beyond anything they even dreamed of for our reality. But dwelling in the shelter of the Most High. So regardless, if you have a an apartment, a house, a condo, a motorhome, a, a tent, you're under a bridge, all right, wherever you are. This is available for all of us in our spiritual walk to be dwelling in the shelter of the Most High. There's no better place to be. Verse 2, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So what do I do when I'm inside there? You tell him how much you're loving it. <laughs> you praise him for what he's doing. You celebrate how awesome He is. Day by day, moment by moment. If you're in faith rest, you rejoice over that. You shout it out. You say, God, you're my faith. God, you're my rest. God, you're my refuge. God, you're my fortress. And it's fun to be there. So I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress. Don't just assume He knows it. It's like, you know, 
just uh, do you assume your wife knows you love her, or do you ever tell her, you know, once a year or so, a couple every couple of years, every every five anniversaries? I think is probably probably sufficient. You know, the big round numbers. If if it's only you know what is this one? It's twenty eight that's coming up. No, twenty seven. Well, big deal. I mean, that's just twenty five was twenty five was a big deal. So, okay, you understand? I'm joking. All right. Someone's going to listen on. Someone's going to listen on MP3 and think, "Wow, is he serious?" So, t- wake up every morning and tell her. Okay, wake up every morning and tell the Lord, "I love you, Lord." All right, and 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 you're in His fortress. You're in His shelter. You're in His dwelling place, and and you didn't pay for it. You didn't build it. He He's welcomed you into His home. Thank Him for that. Thank Him for that. Verse 9. Um, anyway, there's, there's other things. So let's, let's look at the whole thing here. Uh, so we have verses 1 and 2 that start this off, and then verse 3. For it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. How many hymns adapt this psalm, right? Under His wings I am safely abiding. Or... Um, the great is thy faithfulness, or a mighty fortress is our God. I mean, tons of hymn writers adapted this psalm right here because of this reality. You will not be afraid of the terror by night, or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. So you've got a refuge there. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Satan quoted this verse when he was tempting Jesus. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Um, Satan didn't mention verse 13 though where it says you will tread upon the lion and the cobra the young lion and the serpent you will trample down yeah Satan didn't want to bring up that whole trample serpent thing that's too much uh, of a reminder of Genesis 3 uh, the seed of the woman promise he will bruise you on the head and you, you, he will bruise him on the on the heel anyway so uh, yeah that verse 13 didn't get quoted in, in Matthew 4 Verse 14, because, let's go ahead and finish the psalm here. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. So I tell you, it's beautiful. I love the doctrine in the psalms. And uh, when people tell me there's no doctrine in the Psalms, I think, what Bible are you reading? Are you kidding me? And uh, anyway, Hebrews 6. And of course, like I say, we have our faith rest doctrine and what we're learning. We're not quite to chapter 6 yet. We're still in chapter 4. But nevertheless, do you want a fortress? Hebrews 6, verses 18 and 19. 
And uh, yeah, part of the uh, better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. It gets introduced in verses 9 and following. And we do, we do want to uh, run with endurance. And we do want to realize, as it says in verse 11, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. We're going to be talking about diligence this coming Sunday, and it's coming up uh, in chapter 4. We're supposed to be diligent to enter into His rest. And uh, that kind of uh, hard work that takes in, in terms of diligence. And I love my flock that, that are diligent, but the saddest thing in the world is when I think about brothers and sisters that used to be diligent. Brothers and sisters that used to live in the Word of God. And uh, they're on a they're on a different path these days. Alright, so don't be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And this, that's, this is our calling. This is what we're supposed to do. When you get down to this, you see um, how powerful it is. God cannot lie. God cannot lie. And, uh, you know, Abraham had promises, but then never saw them in his lifetime provided. We have promises. And we see them every day. We see them all day every day. The spiritual promises we have in the church age are realized daily. But Abraham waited by faith. Verse 16 says, Men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose, He interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which, remember, it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. The fact that we have a refuge is grounded not in our ability, but in God's faithfulness, the God who cannot lie. So we have a refuge. And we have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. That's our provision. That's our grace. What a joy for us today. Now we were talking this morning in Leviticus 16 only one guy gets to go within the veil. Only one guy and he better do everything right because he's got all these sacrifices to make and all the procedures have to be followed. And if he does one step wrong he's going to drop dead when he stands before that, uh, that, that glory. Because it's the glory, the Shekinah glory of God Himself that's hovering underneath the wings of the, of the cherubim that's, that's hovering over the mercy seat. And if He approaches that glory of God wrong, incorrectly, He's going to drop dead right there. So it's kind of a lonely thing. <laughs> you know? And He's only going to do it one day a year. Alright. But we, we get to go in together as a priesthood, as a family, as a body of believers. And we get to go in every day. And so it is a, uh, a fortress, it is a refuge. It's a great comfort for all of us. All right, back then to uh, Proverbs 14, and we have refuge, and once again we have our next issue. This would be point 18. All right, yes. So we can move on now to verse 28. In a multitude of people is a king's glory. But the dearth of, in the dearth of people is a prince's ruin. Alright, so here's a fun verse. 
If you're in a grace ministry and you realize that numbers don't matter, then you might not like this verse. (laughs) Because this verse says, it's good to have lots of people. And it's not good to have few people. That if if you have a, a multitude of people, kings love that. And if you're pretty thin in the population department, <laughs> well, that means you're, you're headed the wrong direction. So this is true because it's in the Bible. We want to understand it. Wisdom identifies increasing a population as a blessing and a declining population as ruin. Wisdom identifies increasing population as a blessing and declining population as ruin. Now having said that, of course, we're going to stop and we're going to have some caveats. We're going to have some, some additional information to, uh, to bring to focus. But we've got to start here, because this is what it says, and this is true. right? Increasing population, this is true nationally, this is true in a, in a family, uh, this is true in a community. Okay? So think of it as at, at every level in the laws of divine establishment. So start with the nation, the, the nations, okay? Work your way down because that includes state, local, clan, family, marriage even. It's not good for the man to be alone, so add a wife and you're headed that way. <laughs> okay? If you don't add a wife, you're not headed that way. But add a wife, then you can start adding children, then you can start adding other things. All right. And, and so when a people group is increasing, then the future is, uh, is bright. But when the demographics are on the decline, the nation is on a decline. And right now, that is the reality for many nations across this planet. That is a reality that 50 years from now, 100 years from now, this globe is going to look different, a lot different. Okay? And uh, it's, uh, it's uh, staggering to think of what the demographics are like and, and the, the cultures that are not replicating. Okay? And it's got to be, I think it's 2.5, 2.6 is the minimum uh, replacement rate because, uh, you know, it takes two to make one. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then so it takes the, the same two to make two. And, just, and if you're just making two, then you're not really replicating, you're not really increasing. Um, anyway. We're not. We are below replacement levels, which and and so you can kind of skate if you if you through immigration you can bring in some more workers that way because you're not reproducing, um, but still your nation's in trouble. Your nation's in trouble because what's happening is the culture is changing, when it's not your culture that's that's procreating. So there's issues there as it relates to that, and and it's it's probably the the most legendary right now are Japan. Russia, France, I think, are the, are the, but all of Western Europe, all of Western Europe is, is diminishing. It's just France is more spectacular than, uh, than the rest. All right. But it is a blessing. And uh, think about it in a family, it's a blessing. The fruit of the womb is a reward, it's a blessing. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And uh, the the more children you have, the you realize that you have a provision for you in your older years. That uh, maybe you know, if you have four children, one of them might like you when you're old and, and take care of you. Okay, um, 
If you only have three, then your odds have gotten worse. If you only have two, it's a coin toss. The only child, man, you're, you're really banking a lot on that one kid, right? And, and you're kind of walking on eggshells. You don't want him to get mad at you. Okay, that's a little silly. But nevertheless, what about if you've never married? Or if you've married but never had children? Okay, These then become considerations as it relates to, well, am I in a church home? Am I in a church family? Do I have, do I have uh, maybe they're not blood related, but I do have uh, children that I consider to be my children. I have nieces and nephews. I have uh, others that uh, that we've already discussed. You know, I'm not just hoping maybe they'll they'll uh, they'll they'll be a blessing. We've talked about it already. That uh, you know, I'm going to have these these years coming up, and and I would like it if if you would serve the Lord in ministering to my needs at that time. And uh, and just be be out with it because it's uh, that's what we do in the body of Christ. That's what we do as we care for one another. So, um, you know, when you think about David and his, the the love that he had for Jonathan, and then when Jonathan died, David had a blessing to be able to care for Mephibosheth, the the, the you know the cripple kid with the bad uh, feet, couldn't walk, and uh, and David took care of him. wasn't his blood child, but he had that love for for Jonathan, and so. He took care of, uh, of Mephibosheth. Uh, let's look at some of these other verses here. Uh, we want to understand this, the increasing population. Exodus 1, um, it is a blessing. In fact, it was rather intimidating and scary for the Egyptians that uh, those, those Jews kept multiplying. You know, they were like rabbits. They just kept, kept uh, <clears throat> having more and more babies. And uh, after Joseph dies in verse 6, the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied. Notice those are different activities. They were fruitful, they increased greatly, oh, and also they multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And this is to know in the sense of to regard, to esteem, to appreciate. Clearly he, he knew who Joseph was. He, was. he was aware of who Joseph was. He was the most famous man in the country that had saved the country during those years of famine. But did not regard Joseph. And so he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them or else they will multiply. And in the event of war they will also join themselves to those who hate us to fight against us and depart from the land. And this is, uh, this is what happens if you have a population in your boundaries and they have loyalty to the invaders. Okay? And this is a problem. Israel experiences this. <laughs> when they've got these external invaders, these Muslims that are attacking them, and they've got a Muslim population within their own boundaries and they've got to be concerned. You know, where are their loyalties? Do they have religious loyalties that veto their political loyalties? Aspects there. And, uh, you know, what did we do with Japanese citizens during World War II? You know, I mean, it's mocked and hated and ridiculed today, but I think it was very understandable in the 1940s after they bombed Pearl Harbor. And you don't know, are they loyal? Are they not loyal? Anyway, it's not irrational uh, to uh, 
to have that as a concern. But it is a mark of blessing, and it is a mark um, that uh, verse 11, they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, uh, Pithom and Ramses. They may not have been named that at the time, but in later years, the, whatever the city was named at the time came to be renamed this. And so um, anyway, it causes people problems because the name of Ramses comes from a later time period. I don't have an issue with that, but some people struggle. All right, verse 12, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. And you see it's a blessing. It is a blessing. And the Jewish population was increasing and God was blessing them and it was making the Egyptians nervous. All right. Uh, how about verse, uh, maybe we can talk about the midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, the other was named Pua. And, uh, you know, if you only have two midwives in your country, how many babies can you deliver? All right. Uh, Deuteronomy one eleven. Now, generation has passed. This is now the second time to give the law. That's what Deutero means second, namas means law. It's the second giving of the law uh, from the Exodus generation now to the wilderness generation, the children uh, that are going to uh, enter into the land. And um, in this context, uh, Moses recounting their history, reminding them of how their parents failed reminding them of what their land is all about, what he's giving them. He says, uh, verse 8, I have placed this land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to them and their descendants after them. I spoke to you at that time saying, I am not able to bear the burden uh, alone. The Lord your God has multiplied you and behold, you are this day like the stars of the heaven in number. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousandfold more than you are. So they had already increased abundantly. Look at that in verse 10. He's already increased them, but the prayer request is increase a thousandfold more. Increase a thousandfold more. Some people might even want to connect this to the thousand generations if they had a mind to. May the Lord increase you a thousandfold more than you are and bless you just as He has promised you. So is there any hint in these verses that once you've increased to a certain point that you should just stop and say, okay, we're, we, can, uh, we can settle here. We're, 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 we're good here. This is, this, is, uh, this, is, this is where we are. Okay, I'm talking demographically now. I'm not talking about a father and a mother and the, the number of children they can feed. I'm talking about a nation. Does a nation ever say... Um, you know, this is, this is the maximum population. See, it's only the anti-God, non-Bible environmentalists that believe that the population explosion is going to uh, outpace the food production value of planet Earth. How sad. How sad. That, oh, well, we can't feed, we can't feed 7 billion people. You know, they were talking about that back when we had 3 billion people. Guess what? God knows what He's doing. 
And, and not only can we feed seven, 7 billion people today, we can feed them with less workers than we have ever had working in the food industry. Okay? So it's an interesting, interesting thing. All right. But anyway, they, they have their theories. The Bible says that the increase is a blessing. And this is uh, what we have there. How about First uh, Kings 4 and verse 20? So uh, David has passed away and Solomon is now the king. And uh, in chapter 4 we have a summary of all of his officials, what his administration looks like, and, uh, and all of that. Um, that takes us down through verse uh, 19. It is curious too, I don't want to read the whole thing, but... Um, as you uh, as you read through this, what do you notice? <clears throat> Verse seven: Solomon had twelve <clears throat> twelve deputies over all Israel, who provided for the king and his household. Each man had to provide for a month of the year, and so well, it makes a sense. So you divide it out, and this is your tax base that uh, supports your administration. <clears throat> so these are their names: Ben Hur. In the hill country of Ephraim, Ben Ben Decker in Machaz and Shalebeam and Beth Shemesh and, and yeah, this gets hard. Elon Bethhanon, Ben Hesed in Eruboth, Soko was his, and all the land of Hefer. Now, as you, as you work your way through these lands, you're going to start noticing a lot of these are conquered lands. A lot of these are lands that used to belong to other people, but now they belong to Israel. Ben Benadab. In all the heights of Dor. Tafath, the daughter of Solomon, was his wife. And uh, well, that's pretty cool. <coughs> Bana, the son of Ahilud, in Tanakh and Megiddo. And all Bethshane, which is beside uh, Zarathan, below Jezreel, from Bethshane to Abel Meholah, as far as the other side of Jachmim. Ben, this is why these verses don't get read very often. They're hard, hard to pronounce these names. Ben-Geber in Ramoth-Gilead. What do you know about Ramoth-Gilead? The towns of Jer, the son of Manasseh, which are in Gilead, were his. The region of Argob, which is in Bashan. Sixty great cities with walls and bronze bars were his. And what about Bashan? What was Bashan about? That was conquered land. There were bowls of Bashan. There, the Bashan was land. And uh, we start to see some of these enemies get mentioned here. Anyway, God, in His grace, took those walls away and, and uh, gave them to the Jewish people. Ahinadab, the son of Ido in Machanayim, Ahamaz in Naphtali, he also married Basamath, the daughter of Solomon. I think Solomon had a lot of daughters. <laughs> he had a lot of wives, a lot of kids. And, uh, and back then, that's how you cemented the clans together, the families together. You had business dealings because you had um, marriage arrangements between sons and daughters. And uh, when you have this many wives and this many daughters, you've got, uh, you've got those connections. Okay? Does that kind of a thing still happen these days? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think in some way, sure. If uh, depending on who, uh, you know, who your daughters marry and 
the blessings they can provide to, <laughs> you know. Anyway, um, I, uh, I knew a man in Germany named Arthur. He was a World War II survivor. And um, Arthur was just amazing. Of course, older man in World War II. He'd been taken prisoner uh, by the Russians, held in a Russian POW camp, was horribly abused, uh, left crippled. Uh, they, they destroyed his knee and they, they did oh, some horrible things to him. But anyway, after the war, he uh, married and had four daughters. And um, anyway, he just loved Americans. He thought Americans were the greatest people in the world because Americans, uh, Americans smuggled things to him when he was in the Russian camp. And they, uh, they kept him alive. They, they took food to him. They, they snuck uh, Hershey chocolate bars to him. They, they, um, and so after the war was over, when he was restored back to Germany, he went back to his home. Um, in his mind, America was the greatest place in the world. And, uh, and so he was dedicated to, to blessing Americans every chance he could. And he lived near an army base, so that helped. And uh, we'd go over there a lot. We, we went over there, and we'd have schnitzel, and we'd have beer, and we'd have different sausages and whatever. And just, Arthur was a, was a great guy. And uh, didn't speak hardly any English, but that was fine. We got to practice our German with him and, and that. Why am I telling this story? Oh, because he had those four daughters... Yeah, and he ended up being um, well. He was divorced. His wife ran off with an American, but but he 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 didn't hold that against the rest of us. He thought, okay, there's one bad American out of all the rest that are real good, and he just kept blessing the Americans. So we'd go over there. We never paid a thing because he was just always just feeding us and all that. But his daughters, one daughter married a, a, a baker, and guess you know every Monday that son-in-law was showing up. With all the bread and all the dessert and all the, the the and just filled him up for a week, had him had him ready to go. Another daughter married a butcher, so the meat was taken care of. And I forget one one day a week was his meat delivery. Uh, one had a brewery in in Frankfurt, and he would be coming once a week with all the the beer deliveries. You know, Arthur was the town grandpa. Our, I mean, the whole town was at Arthur's house, not just Americans but Germans alike. Um, because his son-in-law would show up with a truck and he'd unload, I mean, must have been 50 cases of beer every week. Okay? Which is not excessive for, for Germans. <laughs> for the whole village. Alright? And then the fourth daughter. Who was the fourth daughter? The butcher? The baker? The brewer? No, no candlestick maker. The, uh, the brewer. He had a fourth one too. Anyway, all four daughters married, you know, Husbands with skills. <laughs> and so Arthur was set. He was set for life. Okay? And this was 30 years ago, so he can't still be alive. He's got to be. Most of the World War II guys are, are gone now. But um, Anyway. So if you have an interest in Aletheia or Zoe, um, let me know. <laughs> we, can, uh, we can talk. Anyway, as we finish these, Ahamaz, base math, the daughter of Solomon, Bina, the son of Hushai, Jehoshaphat, the son of Parua and Issachar, Shimei, the son of Elah, Geber, the son of Uri. We got all this. In the land of Gilead. What's Gilead about? The country of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and of Og, king of Bashan. He was the only deputy who was in the land. Now it's curious here now, of all these deputies and where they are, and all the lands that used to be but aren't anymore, all right, used to be, but aren't anymore. You know, where's the where's the movement now to go back to to give the land of Gilead back to 
the Bashanites, you know, to the Augites. I'm sure that, you know, in our, in our culture today, there would be, um, there would be, uh, you know, outrage and, and, and there's, uh, discrimination and oppression and, oh, you stole that land and, oh, you know, um, we need to, we need to give this land back to the Augites or the Amorites and, uh, and so forth. And why does this land have a new name now? Why don't we go by the old name anymore? You know, Ramoth Gilead had an old name before it became Ramoth Gilead. What's, what's the new name now? What's the, why does it change names? All of these things, I think, are, are significant because Satan hates all of it and Satan attacks all of it. He attacks marriage, he attacks family, he attacks nations, and he attacks history. He absolutely attacks history, which is why, uh, you know, they're doing what they're doing. They're taking Mount McKinley off of the name Mount McKinley, and then they're giving it back to the to the Eskimo name of, of Denali or whatever. They're taking, in fact, not just the mountain, they're taking everything they can away from McKinley. I'm reading an article on that the other day. High schools. Can't be McKinley High School anymore. All right. All of that leads us to verse 20. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. And that is not a problem. Having too many people is not a problem. Not for a king, not for a nation, not for the, the more you have. What do you have? The more you have, the more production you have. The more value, the more increase, the more work that can be achieved. Now Solomon ruled over the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines, the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. This is almost the totality of the land grant that was uh, promised to Abraham. The fact that he had a trading outpost on the Euphrates River took it to the farthest extent of what uh, God had promised Abraham. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal. You know, what does it take to feed a household of that size? Well, now you know. 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture fed oxen, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, fattened uh, fattened fowl. Uh, For he had dominion over everything west of the river, from Tipsah even to Gaza, over all the kings west of the river, and he had peace on all sides around him. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. And so that Dan to Beersheba is the, the really the, the boundary limit, but he had the outpost, like I say, all the way to the river and all the way to Egypt, to the land of the Philistines. And uh, other aspects there. Anyway, numbers are good. Numbers are good. And um, we'll leave that out. Now, in the fact that numbers are good, it's like uh, money. You know, it's useful if you have it. Can you have too much? And if you have, if you have more than you need, what should you be doing with the more than you need? Okay, you got to have wisdom. Solomon had to have wisdom to handle this prosperity. You got to have wisdom with your people too, by the way. If you have too many people, there's no such thing, but if you have an abundance of people, what do you do with the extra people? Okay? And the fact that we have such leisure pursuits in our country shows that, that we're very rich, we're very blessed, we're very wealthy. 
that people have time to pursue the things that they pursue is, uh, is an interesting thing. But let's understand, numerical superiority is not a substitute for fearing God. And that numbers is not the, yes, it, it can be the indicator of blessing, but don't defy that blessing by forgetting the fear of the Lord. Don't defy that blessing by abusing your increased population or, or abusing your increased money, your increased wealth. And don't confuse the blessing with the blesser. Let me say that again. The blessing, if God has given you a lot of people, this is true, by the way, in a local church, if, if God increases us numerically, great. We can do more with more that He gives us. But let's not confuse the blessing with the blesser because God's the one that's giving the blessing. God is the one who blesses. And we want to have that same fear of the Lord if we have uh, prosperity or if we have adversity. If we have wealth or we have a little. Paul says, I've learned the secret of both. So numerical superiority is not a substitute for fearing God. And in, in Joshua 24... This is the famous choose you this day whom you will serve chapter. The speech that he's making here. He points this out. Joshua 24, he gives them a, a history lesson. Talks about the patriarchs. He talks about the exodus. He talks about the conflict. And um, Verse 8 says, I brought you into the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan and they fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land when I destroyed them before you. See, God's in charge of this. He raises kings, He removes kings. The, the, the boundaries of the land are entirely his, uh, his doing. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. He sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam, so he had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. So you crossed the Jordan, came to Jericho, and all the citizens of Jericho fought against you. And the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Canaanite, and the Hivite, I'm sorry, Hittite, Girgashite, Hivite, Jebusite, thus I gave them into your hand. Now, did they win because they had the bigger numbers? Did Israel win because they outnumbered their opponents? No. We're told seven nations each one greater and mightier than you. Seven nations, and the smallest of those seven nations outnumber the Jewish people. Say, that's why I think that the numbers, you know, if you think there was two million Jewish people coming through out of the, out of the Exodus, I think you need to get a better estimate of, of those numbers. All right. Notice what God's doing here. Then I sent, verse 12, then I sent the hornet before you and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you. Not by your sword, not by your bow. Are you impressed with your armies? Are you impressed with how many soldiers you have and the weapons you've got them equipped with? You need to have the fear of the Lord. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities which you had not built. You have lived in them. You're eating of vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. So, yes, if you observe the increase... Praise God for the increase, but don't confuse the blessing with the blesser. And don't think that, well, the increased numbers now, all our problems are taken care of. No, no. Keep the fear of the Lord. Stay faithful. 
Numerical superiority is not a substitute for fearing God. Psalm 33, 16. Verse 13 says, let's see, goodness. <laughs> Do I read the whole thing? Um, verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. That's not America, that's Israel. The Lord looks down from heaven, he sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works, the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His loving kindness. So see, don't don't lose your fear of the Lord, ever. Numerical superiority Weapons, armies, horses. Don't confuse that. Zechariah 4, verse 6. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Zechariah 4, 6. Here's a couple of olive trees. I love this. So the angel of the Lord was speaking to me, returned, roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. He said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see, behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it, seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which were on top of it, and two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. And the, I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain, and uh, he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. And there's more, it goes on through the end of the chapter. But understand these olive trees and understand the symbolism of this and how humble was Zerubbabel. He was the heir of David. He was in the line of Christ. He was entitled to the throne and he couldn't have it. And he accepted that. He led captives back from Babylon. They settled in the land of Israel. He worked with the high priest, Joshua the high priest there and, and Zerubbabel. And they, they, he served as a Persian governor not as a Davidic king. Just a tremendous humble man. And he gets this message here. But not by might nor by power, but by spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Let's not lose our uh, fear of the Lord if we think numbers are the issue. We think, oh, well, if Austin Bible Church just had more people, then we could do more things. Are you kidding me? Let's just fear the Lord and let's just keep doing what He wants us to do. Leave the rest in His hands. First Chronicles 21 We've got to close with this because I'm out of time. First Chronicles. I saved it for last so that we could get to it. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. First Chronicles 21. 
This is back up now in time. We've got to back up to David's generation. Satan stood up against Israel and he moved David to number Israel. He moved him. He motivated him. He influenced him. We don't know how. We don't know who was whispering in his ear or how he did it. Verbally or somehow. You know, when we say the devil made me do it, I think we're lying. But this verse says the Satan moved him. Now David's still accountable because he acted upon the temptation. So David said to Joab, he listened to the voice he shouldn't have listened to. David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, go, number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, bring me word that I may know their number. And this is a problem. And even Joab knows it's a problem. When a carnal unbeliever tells you this is a bad idea, that's a, it's a bad idea. You know, and then, you know, Job's, Joab said, may the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. I don't care what the count is. May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. But my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed, went throughout all Israel, and came to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the number of the census to all the people of, to David. And again, numbers are a problem and there's manuscript questions about um, you know, errors that creep into the copies of the manuscripts. Um, but he did not number Levi and Benjamin among them for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. And God was displeased so he struck Israel. And um, this is what happens here. And David gets rebuked. David gets rebuked here because this is, uh, this is what's happening here. Anyway, the lesson is, David, you didn't win all your battles because you had the superior army. You didn't win all your battles because you, know, you outnumbered the Philistines or you outnumbered your, the uh, Amorites or you outnumbered uh, the Arameans of Damascus, all the other enemies that David defeated. He won because he feared the Lord. You know, why did he defeat Goliath? Okay, <laughs> So let's not confuse numerical superiority as a substitute for fearing God. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the book of Proverbs. And I pray that we continue to glean these principles and, and be blessed by your teaching. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.